Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Dr. Peter Bagshaw, uh, GP and Clinical Commissioning uh, Lead for Mental Health and Dementia. And I'm delighted that our guest this week is somebody I know uh, well, Dr. Jennifer Butte, who is a retired academic GP. Uh, she's author of a book, Dementia from the Inside. She has a website called Glorious Opportunity, and she serves on many expert committees and, and always gives her wisdom and, and puts into practice the ethos of living well with dementia. So welcome, Jennifer. And do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and your journey to how you got to here? Thank you, Peter. Lovely to see you again. Um, well, I feel very privileged, as always, um, to have the background that I have and the opportunities. My father had dementia. So I have all these different perspectives. My father's perspective, how it affects families um, as a GP, how it affects patients and their families, myself, seeing it from the inside. And I now live in a dementia-inclusive village, living amongst, amongst many, many others, you know, over 100 people with dementia and those that don't have it. And I'm walking the path with them. And I've been in this dementia-inclusive village for over 10 years now living with these people 24 hours a day. And it's a privilege and a wonderful opportunity to learn from them what helps, what works, what doesn't, and to be encouraged and to encourage. And as well as learning from them, I know that you're very keen to tell other people uh, walking that same journey, what helps and what doesn't help. So what, what are the, the top tips that you've learned along the way for living with dementia? Well, I have three basic principles, um, and I think that all dementia can be wound up within these three principles. The first is there's always a reason. There's always a reason for whatever anyone with dementia does or says, and that can be unpacked. Um, but that is the first reason. But almost the most important reason is that feelings remain when facts are forgotten. It doesn't matter what you do or where you go or who with, it's how the person feels, how we feel about that. That's what we remember. And the third principle is that patterns continue, which is one reason why routines are important. Things that we used to do are familiar with, why they continue. So all those things continue throughout all stages of dementia. And that's something I, I think that as professionals, we often forget but uh, there's that, I think it's Maya Angelou, isn't, isn't it? It gives that wonderful quote that we've, we may forget what people say, but we always remember how they made us feel. That's right. That's and right. that absolutely applies to people with dementia. So can we unpack those three principles a little bit? And tell us about what you mean by people's actions always meaning something. Well, well, the first thing that comes to mind is that, you know, the use of drugs for people that are behaving badly um, Canadians talk about challenging behaviour as responsive behaviour because when people with dementia behave in a way that is considered inappropriate, unacceptable or not what they other people think should be, there's always a reason for it. So giving people a chemical kosh is not the answer. 
Um, I have never, as a GP, never prescribed antipsychotic um, medicines to people with that type of problem. For example, if someone is wandering around and people hate the word wandering, well, people wander for all kinds of reasons. There's always a reason for it. So it's no good telling the person to stop wandering or tell them to sit there. You've got to find out why they're wandering, which digressing a bit is why I, I've made with my son all these different educational videos on all these different subjects. You know, I've got one on hallucinations. I've got one on wandering and one on time traveling and so on. Anyway, um, wandering, you know, they could be going to find something or looking for something or finding a purpose or so we have to find the reason for why they're doing the thing we don't want them to do. <laughs> um, if they're looking for their looking for their mother who happens to have died, well, why are they looking for their mother at that time? Is it because their mother was a place of safety to them? Did they feel comfortable with their mother? Is that what they're looking for? So the fact there's always a reason. And I share your passion for trying to avoid antipsychotics and chemical coshes wherever possible. It takes a bit of time, doesn't it? Sometimes you need to get under the skin of people, uh, particularly if they've got advanced dementia and maybe difficult communicating, to find out why they're doing something. But it, I would have thought it's always worthwhile. It, it, is that your experience as well? Indeed. And one of my passions is communication. <laughs> and that's why I have the privilege of living here where we have an advanced dementia unit. Um, I only believe in three stages of dementia, the early, the middle, and the end ones. <laughs> and the people at the end stage who need 24-hour care, whose spouses or families or whatever aren't able to live in the part that I'm in, where we have continual care, but need more than that, go over there. And I, particularly before COVID, would visit these people regularly, regularly, and learnt how to continue to communicate with them because I passionately believe the person remains till the end. Well, most people say that people have this period of lucidity um, in dementia before they die. Well, if that is so, which it is, doesn't that mean the person was always there? They just hadn't been found. And that is why I use the analogy when I do talks about you know, having a house, if you, if you want to go and visit someone and you ring the front door and there's no answer, some people might go home, but it doesn't mean to say the person's not there. You know, they might have fallen down, they might have broken their leg, they might be ill, they might be hungry, they might be asleep. So what do you do? Well, you'd go and try the back door, look in through the window, shout through the letterbox. So with people with dementia, we need to find other ways of finding the person that is still there. And my passion is to enable that. And people who have difficulty with speech, there are ways of enabling them to talk. And we're wandering all over the place, but that doesn't matter. But that is where music helps. Absolutely. And I, I'm involved in the, the Music for Dementia uh, Trust, which does fabulous work. And we've probably all seen that, that marvellous uh, piece of piano uh, yes. that was done recently. So it just shows that the, the person is in there. And it yes. seems that people can remember tunes yes. often when they struggle with words. Is that right? Yes, yes indeed. And sometimes when people can't talk, they can sing. Hmm. I can remember someone here coming to me in great distress saying that their children were abroad and their husband was no longer able to talk to them on the phone. So I said, well, why don't you get him to sing to them instead? 
Fantastic. That's absolutely brilliant. And and I like you, I I find this the words that we use of challenging behavior or difficult behavior or BPSD. I don't like those. I, I think it's up to us to find out what's going on inside that person's mind and, and try and help them with that. Is is that yes. something you, you would agree? Indeed. I mean, that's why the Canadians call it responsive behaviour. They are responding to something, an unmet need. Yes. Or an environment that didn't suit them or, you know, they need to get the toilet or, you know, they're hungry. The simple, there's always a reason, which is my first principle. Absolutely. And we had an example uh, of somebody who became very distressed um, when they looked in the mirror because they were time shifting and, and they thought they were seeing their... Their, their mother, yes. uh, whereas they were seeing their own reflection and didn't recognise that. And, and once that was dealt with, then their behaviour was absolutely fine. And I'm sure you've come across similar examples, haven't you? Indeed, yes, yes, yes. They've yeah. removed the mirrors in the in places because it doesn't help. Because often people queuing up here, you know, to get into a lift to go upstairs, they won't go into the lift because they see the mirror on the back and all these people, the, the lift is full. Yeah. <laughs> so absolutely. removing mirrors does often help, yes. Your second point was about feeling. Yeah. And I think that's really important to remember that even when people have severe dementia, they're, they're still capable of feeling. What, what do you want to tell us about that? Well, even if people don't remember who you are or remember incorrectly, they know whether you make them feel better. So, you know, if you go and see someone who, with dementia and you are able to make them feel comfortable, they will then be able to communicate with you, even if they don't know who you are. <laughs> and that is important. But if you make them feel um, threatened or um, for whatever reason, they will freeze inside mm. and then they won't communicate at all. And I know that. If we ask people factual questions, well, we're not going to know the answer. So we, we kind of freeze inside and we get nowhere. I mean, a kind of example of that, you know, I'd go over to the advanced dementia unit and I'd see a relative sitting next to someone that I often spoke to. And I'd say to the relative, oh, how lovely to see you. You know, you've got a lovely mother. And her, there's no point visiting her. She doesn't talk. I said, oh, that's interesting. Um, may I sit down with you and, you know, see if I... You know, just chat with her a little bit like I do normally, if you must. <laughs> yeah, extraordinary. These people don't seem to believe that it's possible. So the daughter would say, well, I mean, this is a true story. I mean, several stories. So she would turn to her mother and she'd say, so what did you have for, for lunch? Well, you don't ask people to mention a factual question. I have no clue what I had for lunch or for breakfast. I presume I had something. It's not important, is it? So, of course, the mother would look at her and say nothing. So the daughter said, there, I told you so. Or, what day is it today? And I'll say, well, let me just have a little chance. So I would sit down next to the lady. I said, oh, it's so lovely to see you. You've got such a lovely smile. I always enjoy coming to see you. And it's such a joy to see the sun outside and the trees, isn't it? And the birds and the leaves on the tree. Yes, it is, isn't it? She said it's always. And that's almost the same as the first principle in that we need to get to know that individual and know what behaviour is appropriate for them uh, rather than making it difficult. And I, I get a lot of relatives, I'm, I'm sure you've had the same in your career, who, who say, well, 
mum says these things that I know are wrong and I, I correct her and then she gets cross, I, which is, would you, <laughs> you're shaking your head for those of <laughs> for people who can't see you. So how should people approach folk who say things that, that we know aren't, aren't actually there? Please never correct us. Um, well, not directly. I mean, for example, I'll just tell you a story about myself. Um, you know, I go and see someone and they would say, oh, hello, you're my aunt, you know, aunt Maud, how nice to see you. Well, I'm not, her, you know, I wasn't their Aunt Maud. I, I wouldn't say, oh, don't be so silly. So I just smile. Obviously, Aunt Maud was popular, so I was being popular. So I say, oh, it's lovely to see you. I do not believe in telling lies. <laughs> so I'd sit down with the person and pretend, well, not pretend, but she would think I was Aunt Maud and would get talking about things. And, and I would know a bit about her because I would have been visiting her for some time. And and she would say, oh, you know, we're waiting for my brother to turn up. Well, I knew her brother was not alive. I knew that he had died. But I didn't say, oh, don't be so stupid, he's dead, because you don't do that with people with dementia. So I would chat away and I'd say, oh, tell me about your brother. I love, you know, yeah, tell me about your brother. So she would tell me stories. And after a while, it often happened, she would suddenly stop and look at me and she said, but Aunt Maud, my brother's dead, isn't he? And I'd say, yeah. She said, why didn't you tell me? I said, well, you knew that. And I love hearing the stories that you tell about him. Whereas if I had said to her, oh, don't be so silly or he's dead, that would have been the end of the conversation because I've seen it. That, that's fantastic advice for anybody visiting somebody with severe dementia. I, I think that's a really helpful thing to, to hang on to. And then your third principle. That patterns continue. Um, and that's so important. And many patterns, you know, the routines and music again, that's a pattern, isn't it? Skills that we've had in the past. Sometimes it's people with knitting, some people with art, um, singing, um, sorting things, figures. It doesn't matter. There's always something that remains. And the pattern of how we learnt is something that I use in the memory groups that I run. The fact that reading, writing, and arithmetic is how our brains were wired up when we were kids. And I heard a Japanese professor talking about this and how in Japan they had found out that if they use those three things in the same period of time um, on a regular basis, it would help to keep the neurons firing or forming new connections because the pattern of the reading, writing, and arithmetic is embedded within all our brains. Well, it, you know, for many years, I don't know whether the new education system does that, but it certainly does for almost all the people with dementia at the moment. So if we use those three things, and it's nothing to do with, you know, exams or learning facts, it's just a matter of reading, and we can read by reading poetry, and that's another pattern, you see, another rhythm people remember. Um, the rhythm from the past of familiar poetry. And you see, I'm learning all the time. I'd have people coming to my memory groups who with advanced dementia and one lady used to come regularly and she was almost mute. She never said a word. We'd always start with singing because that helps to tie up the loose ends. And then we would, sometimes we started with, we always do it now, we'd read a poem. And I noticed that she was joining in with the poem. 
And I noticed that after, if we all stopped reading the poem, she would continue to read the poem by herself. And then if I spoke to her for the next few minutes, she would continue to talk just like after music. But I've never heard that really promoted, that the rhythm, the pattern of familiar poetry would enable someone to go on talking later you know, with advanced dementia. I mean, she's died now. But, you know, we're learning all the time these little things that can be so important to enable people to communicate. I'm sure you're right. And I, I suspect that's why we teach children um, poems and those sort of things, because of that pattern makes it easier to understand and, and seems to stick in our brain. You mentioned knitting and uh, we looked after uh, my aunt, um, who was 94, I think, uh, with severe dementia. And she knitted which is a very complex skill, but something she'd learn up, learned as a child, that pattern of, of knitting, and could carry on doing that right up to the end. Um, now, you mentioned your, your memory groups, and I know this is something you've been involved with um, for a long time. We, as, as medics, of course, we give it a fancy name, don't we? We call it cognitive stimulation therapy, uh, <laughs> because we always have to have a fancy name for these things. But tell, tell me... What sort of things you do, what difference you feel it makes, how you, how you think it helps? Well, we meet twice a week. Um, during COVID, this has been a bit complicated, but we have persevered and we're now meeting again face to face. We have met this morning. Um, I produce booklets. When I heard the professor talking about the reading, writing and arithmetic, and how we learned, I started off with preschool materials for children, and that did not go down very well. You can imagine. People mm. here were insulted, you know, even mm. dementia, they were insulted. So I had to produce my own materials. And it's kind of evolved over the years because I've been doing these groups now for what, nine years. And I started doing them here, and then I used to do it entirely by myself with bits of paper for people at different stages in their dementia. And it became so chaotic. I couldn't cope. So I produce a booklet. And in the booklet, there's the reading, writing and arithmetic under different disguises for all stages of dementia. And people can do what they like. But we always start with singing because that helps to join up the loose ends. And then we always read a poem together now because that um, also helps. And then we so that's the reading and the writing might just be drawing lines. It might be writing words um, and things like that. So and then the arithmetic, it doesn't matter whether you get the sums right. It's just the matter of thinking about numbers for some reason, that part of the brain. So it's not an exam or seeing who can do the most complicated maths. You know, we might say, you know, what are one and one? And it doesn't matter if they get the answer right as being two. <laughs> It's the fact that it, the numbers were thought about. And I used to produce all these booklets myself. I'm completely incapable of that now because I can still talk. Well, can't do much else because things um, do progress, even if we can slow down the progression. But the management here have seen the difference it has made to the village here. And they now... <laughs> produce all the booklets for me. I give them the master copies and they do all the printing, all the stapling, produce it all. It is wonderful because they see the difference it has made. That's brilliant. Would, would these be available more widely if people were interested? Uh, for instance, via your website? 
Yes. Um, the the basic the um, the the really basic um, booklets are available. And they can be bought on USB sticks or they can be sent as zip files. It's all on my website, yes. Fantastic. So let's give that a plug. How do people get onto your website if they want to? It's called gloriousopportunity.org. Fantastic. And I think that uh, sort of sums up your attitude to life, that um, there's no such thing as a problem, only an opportunity. That's right. Bless Christ, <laughs> Prime Minister. And, and you do blogs on that as well, don't you? Um, I do a weekly blog. The reason I do that, I mean, everyone does. Well, no, that's not true. A lot of people do blogs. And I thought there were enough blogs, just as I thought there were enough books around. But <laughs> I was persuaded to have one. Um, so the reason I do the blog is because I kept being asked questions by people with dementia. How do I deal with this or how do I deal with that? So I started answering these questions and the number of followers grew and grew and grew. <laughs> So I then started doing a weekly one on a Friday morning um, with a particular problem or situation that I'd had during the week that I had learnt through, which would help other people um, to learn from. And I know that it's helpful because of all the comments I get. So that is on Facebook, also Glorious Opportunity, but it's on Facebook. Fantastic. So Glorious Opportunity, and we'll, we'll put the link in at the end, of course. And you mentioned a book. You you have a book, don't you? Uh, a very successful book. Uh, Dementia from the Inside, A Doctor's Personal Journey of Hope. And again, a very positive title. So tell us how that came about and, and what, what, the, uh, what you're conveying with that and how people can get hold of it. Well, when I was working, because I was, you know, I was a lecturer at one stage, you know, the pattern of the teaching continues, doesn't it? Um, I, I'm used to giving talks. It doesn't worry me whether it's five people or 500 because I've done so much in the past. So at the end of my lectures, people would say, well, do you have a book about all this? And I say, no, 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 there are enough books out there already because, you know, now there are so many, aren't there? And I did not want a book because I thought there were too many. But I was persuaded. I was chased by book agents, seriously chased, um, I was given ghostwriters, and it's all, it all became very complicated. Anyway, in the end, um, it worked out, let's put it like that. So it, the book was produced because I was persuaded that it was necessary. And it was written by someone who followed me around for a year to all the lectures I gave. They recorded them and took me in their car, whether it was up to Leicester or down to London or down to you know, the Eden Project, it didn't matter. They would take me deliberately in their car with a microphone <laughs> and a recorder and ask me about my background and my past history and chat to me. And I'd forget I had the microphone on, so lots of stories came out. And then my three children would check the results for accuracy and for factual, you know, in case I hadn't remembered correctly. They would um, check it all. And, you know, that was how it came about. And people who read it say it sounds just like me because she spent a year following me around like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm privileged to have, have uh, read it. And it is indeed a fantastic read. Uh, if people are interested, it's available from Amazon. There's a Kindle edition as well. So Dementia from the Inside, A Doctor's Personal Journey of Hope. And I think anyone who's listened to you today 
will know that you're incredibly positive and, and trying to learn lessons and help other people. And, and the book is a fantastic message for doing, method for doing that. So thank you for committing that time to it. We've got a few minutes left. Are, are there any last messages of hope that you want to leave our listeners with? Well, there's always something you can do. And another principle I have is I talk about getting on your sledge. <laughs> um, S-L-E-D-G-E. It took me ages to think that up, and it's a bit of a cheat, one of it. But sledge, the S and the E, the beginning and end of the word, is the social engagement. To keep well with dementia, you've got to remain socially engaged. It's no good sitting in front of a TV. It's like after a stroke. You know, if someone has a stroke nowadays, we expect improvement. We expect people to get better. But it's not because they sit in front of a TV and do nothing all day. It's because they're given physiotherapy or speech therapy or they're made, you know, it's, it's hard work recovering from a stroke. Well, it can be quite hard work with dementia. You know, <laughs> I have to put a lot of effort into it. So, um, the social engagement is very important. The L is laughter, because laughter is so important. And laughter also helps people talk. I found people in my group who say nothing or unable to talk. If you get them really laughing, they'll start telling you stories about their childhood. You think, goodness, I didn't know you were able to do that. So laughter really works. The E is exercise. We've got to you know, keep exercising. You know, our teachers used to walk up and down, didn't they, to, while they were talking or teaching us because it helps the brain. <laughs> um, and enjoyment, it can stand for that as well. Diet, of course, because we need to eat sensibly for health reasons, don't we? And the G, the sledge, is a bit of a cheat. It's the cognitive stimulation that we have already talked about. Yes. Well, that's a fantastic. Any acronym that, that helps, I think, is, is good. And I share your passion that although dementia is not curable uh, and although it is progressive, we can do things that, that affect the course of that progression, can't we? Indeed, yes. There's always hope. And I, you know, even as a doctor, when people, people come and say, oh, they said there was nothing we could do, we would never say that to anybody. There's always something you can do, even if it's just listening to the person or walking the path with them. You know, never, ever would I ever say to anyone, there's nothing we can do. There's always something, you know, encouragement or small things that can make enable one to live well and to die well. I do believe that. Well, you are the living embodiment of living well and uh, doing the best with dementia and, and really making a difference both to your own health and lots of other people around you. So I'm extremely grateful that you've shared the time uh, today uh, to, to give those messages of hope to our listeners and uh, I hope they'll be inspired to go on and buy your book and look at your website thank you very much indeed Dr Jennifer Butte it was a joy thank you very much you've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast hosted by Dr Andrew Tresider and Dr Peter Bagshaw the show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group